And good morning. You can have a seat. Uh, we are thrilled that you are here. My name is Dean. I'm the lead pastor. Whether today is uh, day number 1001, day number one, something in between, whether you're watching online, we're grateful uh, that you are here as we are moving through this series, week number two, the series we're calling New, as we're moving through uh, the revelation uh, from St. John, right, to his original hearers. And then on uh, to us. I hope you're journeying as well with us through uh, Revelation day by day by day through the LifePoint app. You can search keyword LifePoint Ohio wherever you get apps. And we're moving through that with an audio podcast and a passage of scripture and a written devotional um, every day. The big idea for this series, the thing that we're talking about every week, is that Revelation is more about present hope than it is about a future calendar. It was written to comfort and to confront us not to confuse us or to give us some sort of uh, Da Vinci Code like uh, timeline out into the future. Now I was thinking about that this week. You know, imagine if you were one of the original recipients, right? One of the original hearers of this letter from John. You were part of one of those churches in uh, in Asia Minor. You're going through severe persecution uh, that happened in a number of forms. One example of that. Uh, was from one of the Caesars of Rome, a guy named Nero. I'll show you Nero's picture uh, up here, a bust of, uh, of Nero. Nero was a terrible human being, but he had a fantastic neck beard, as you can see right there. And so Nero, one of the things he did, he didn't, um, he, he very concerned about the slums, what he called the slums of Rome. And so he decided he would go uh, set fire to some of the slums. But when he did, man, the fire just raged, right? It raged out of control. Um, and in doing so, right, thousands of people lost their lives. People were angry. How did this fire start? And so what Nero did is he came up with a myth. And the myth, the idea uh, that Nero came up with was this idea that Zeus and Athena, the gods, set the fire. And the reason that they set that fire um, was because they were mad that Christians were believing in this new God named Jesus. And so because of that, people throughout the Roman Empire, man, they got mad at Christians. They started persecuting Christians. They were left out of business transactions. Um, they were shunned by people. And so you're experiencing this severe persecution. All of a sudden you hear St. John has written you a letter, right? And it is on its way to you. Um, and imagine if you get that letter and you read it and all of a sudden it's about events that are going to happen out in the future, 2000 years from now in a place that you don't even know exists in the Western part of the world. Like that's not going to compute for you, right? That's not going to make sense. The letter has to make sense to its original hearers. And then therefore it makes sense to us. Now, the reason if there is future hope, right? The ultimate future is there in Revelation. We're going to see it. We're going to experience. We'll talk about it and we'll get there. But it's more about our present than it is about our future. So as we're looking at these uh, seven different churches that St. John, that he writes to um, in, um, in Asia Minor there, today we're going to look at one of the uh, cities, one of the churches in the city, a city called Sardis. Sardis, well known for um, a lot of different things. One of those is that all of the money in Asia Minor was minted in Sardis. So they had a massive, not only banking system to mint all of the money, but they had a system right there, the largest bank in uh, that whole part of the world was there. So maybe it would be like if there was a city that had a major banking hub like Chase or Huntington Bank or something right along those lines. The other thing that was unique about Sardis is that the vast majority of textiles in terms of fabrics were made 
there in the city of Sardis. So it'd be like if a city had a big, I don't know, company like L Brands or something like that. that was a, so I think what we're going to see is that this city and the letter to the city is very applicable uh, to us, to where we are in the life, the history um, of, of our city. And so we'll jump in there. Chapter three, verse one, it says this, and to the angel, and remember we talked about last week how he said the, the angel, he refers to that as the pastor of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but, uh, but you are dead. So they have this living reputation with a dead reality. Now, what does, he, what does he mean by that? Now, when he writes to the church, it's not just the church as a group. It's the church as individuals. I think it's one of the things. I think we would call this today projection. I think that's what we would call it, right? So what happens in projection is I take the negative things that I feel about me, and I don't want to deal with those things. So instead of dealing with my own negative emotions that I feel about me, I project those onto you. So in other words, let's say, um, I don't know, let's say I'm, I'm experiencing jealousy, right? Instead of going to God and saying, God, I don't know why I feel jealous, but I need for you to help me understand why I feel jealous and help me deal with that through your spirit and your spirit's work in my life. Instead of doing that, what I do is I pretend that it must be you that's jealous of me. Now, it's not just that I project my negative emotions onto you. Rather, also, I grab your positive qualities and I project those onto me, right? So what I want to do in this whole idea of projection is, let's say you're, uh, you're generous, you're kind, you're faithful. I see myself as generous, kind, and faithful, and I see you as just the opposite, you being jealous of me for the things that aren't really great about me, but that I'm saying are great about me because I don't want to deal with my own realities. I want you to think I'm more moral, I'm more kind, I'm more capable, I'm wealthier maybe than I am. I want you to think that, um, that, that in general I'm more loving than I am, I'm more gifted than I am. There's a term for it, we call it the imposter syndrome. Psychologists say that when you get down to it, the greatest fear that many, many people in our country have is that they'll be found out for who they really are. So we project, right? Onto the, we, we project a self that's not true. We have a reputation for a certain, being a certain kind of person, but the reality is different. That's what he's saying to these, to these believers here in Sardis. He says, listen, you have this reputation for life, but what really is functioning in you is, is a completely alternate reality. What's really functioning in you is death. And what's interesting about that is that we project, again, I'm wealthier, I'm smarter, I'm more capable, I'm better. And the reality is, people know it's not true. You know it's not true. I know that it's not true. So we have to deal with that, right? We have to deal with that reality. But how do you do that? We're all long, human beings are longing for authenticity. It's like, you know, we all project an image, or if you have social media, maybe you project an image that everything's great. You only put pictures up there that are great. And yet, there's this proliferation of new apps that have come out over the last few years, like Be Real, right? Be Real is an app that 
at a random time when an alarm goes off during the day, you've only got two minutes to post a picture of yourself so that you can't, you can't make yourself look better than you are. You can't make yourself look smarter than you are. You can't really make yourself look happier than you are because we have this desire as human beings for authenticity. He says you have this, this, this idea that you have this reputation that you're alive, but you have this dead, dead reality. So he's going to tell them three things. Church, it starts three things. Wake up, listen up, dress up. First thing he says to him here in verse two, wake up, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my, uh, of my God. We, um, we deal with reality by displaying authenticity and humility. That's what helps us deal with. Um, that's what helps us deal with reality. There's a little bit of theological controversy about this church, about this text, because the idea is you don't tell dead people to wake up, right? So the question is, are these people, are they Christians? Are they believers who have kind of gotten casual in their faith? Or are these people who think that they're Christians, they think they're believers, but they're really not believers? And I think the answer is probably yes, right? There's probably some of both. And I think the context helps us with that. The reason that I think he says what he says in the way that he says it to the city of Sardis um, is very particular. When you, you visit the ruins of the city of Sardis and you can, you can go visit them in modern day Turkey um, today, the primary feature in Sardis um, when they unearthed the ruins was a massive necropolis. Now, when you think about necropolis, um, think about a massive cemetery. And by massive, I mean like Arlington National Cemetery long. It's, it's built right next to the main road in the city. You can see here that the majority of the, of the crypts, the casts are built above ground so everyone can see them. And it's over a mile long, which in their world was crazy. Why would that be the primary feature in your city? Because Sardis was built on the top, on a plateau on top of a mountain, Mount Tamulus um, there. And so it was very difficult to attack. It was easy to defend. They would put a, put a perimeter on the outside, and if invading armies tried to come up, they would have to climb the rocks. You can easily, you can shoot arrows, you can throw rocks down at. I mean, you, there's so many things. It's easy, easy to defend. But twice, two times in Sardis's history, I think it was um, 549 B.C. and 218 B.C., they took that position for granted, and the guards fell asleep at night at their posts. And because of that, invading armies were able to climb up the rocks and to attack the city. And thousands of people, thousands of people lost their lives. And so they built this massive cemetery and they put the graves above ground in these castles where people could see them as a reminder of this reality that if you take a position of strength for granted, it can completely undermine you. And I don't think that's lost on John as he writes to them. This reality, I'm going to say it to you this way, that an unguarded strength can become your greatest weakness. If you begin to take your relationship with God for granted, you begin to take your relationship with your spouse for granted, you begin to take your relationship with your friends for granted, you begin to take your um, privilege and responsibility as a parent for granted, an unguarded strength can become, it can easily become, your greatest weakness. And we see that, maybe we don't connect the dots, but we see that in the life of, um, even in the life of our country, spiritually speaking. Every year um, in America, 
five to 8,000 churches close their doors every single year. Now, there's a lot of reasons. You know, geographic, uh, geographical movements of people and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons you could factor into it. But I think at the end of the day, what happens in almost every church that closes up shop What happens is they begin to care more about the people who are already here than they do about the people who are not here yet. They worry more about the people that they're trying to reach. The gravitational pull of Christianity is always towards us. It's always towards insiders, right? And churches begin over time more and more and more to care more about insiders than they do about outsiders, about people who aren't yet here. We care more about keeping than we tend to care about reaching. And over time, so what happens to churches, years and years and years, they dwindle, they dwindle, they dwindle. I'll, I'll, give, you, um, I'll give you an example. Um, if you've ever been to New York City, Times Square, there's a famous pizza shop um, on Times Square called John's Pizzeria. Maybe some of y'all have been to John's before. I'll show you a modern day picture uh, of John's. It's a very, very well-known, like I said, uh, pizza shop if if you've been there. But let me show you a picture of John's Pizzeria at the turn of the 20th century. Long before they ever served pizza, this was the Gospel Tabernacle. It was led by a pastor whose name was A.B. Sampson. It was an incredible church, one of the largest churches um, in all of the Americas. At the time, they sent missionaries all over the world. Sampson started the denomination that trained um, a guy named A.W. Tozer, who was one of the most prolific uh, writers in terms of spiritual formation that affected um, the Jesus movement, the Jesus people in the 1960s, had a profound, profound effect on our country. And today... They roll pizza dough on the altar of Gospel Tabernacle to make pizzas. Now, depending upon how you feel, what you think, and what you believe, you're like, that's terrible. And, it, and I get that. I get that. And think about this. Where's the church at Philippi today? Church at Corinth? Like they're all gone, right? Like churches have life cycles. The question is not necessarily how long does a church last, but what does it do while it lasts? Is a church committed to the mission? And that's really what I think John is saying here. You've got to wake up to the mission, the mission of your life, the mission of your group, and the mission of your church. And the mission is reaching and making, multiplying disciples. And so what churches should be committed to do is reaching people, growing people, and sending people. Right? So just like what's going on right now in the life of our church um, in launching LifePoint Worthington. Right? So we've grown disciples here at our Lewis Center campus. They've grown disciples over at the Westerville campus. Some of them are connected in Worthington and live there. And so we're launching some of those folks to go help start a congregation because we want believers who are multiplying their lives as they grow up in discipleship. They multiply them into groups and those groups multiply themselves into congregations, right? So we want to make multiplying disciples. So you heard me last week. If you were here, you heard me last week. Say, look, man, today's, um, well, 
Last week I said that today was going to be, but today actually is move up Sunday in LifePoint Kids. And we need men and we need women and we need high school students and we need college students and we need middle school students to serve in LifePoint Kids. Serve the next generation. Well, why do we need all those people? Man, look, look around the room. Looks like there's plenty of people, right, around here. You know why? Because we're sending a bunch of our best down to Worthington. And so we have to grow up new disciples in serving, give them opportunities to serve, and prayerfully, we'll continue to multiply and we'll continue to reproduce into the future. What would be way easier, way easier, would be to just say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get everybody we can to drive here. And we're just going to get this, this room. We're going to try and fill this room up as big as we can. And we'll do it another time. And we'll do it. And we just want to get everybody. That'd be way easier. But I don't believe that's what we're called to do. I believe we're called to multiply. I believe you read the book of Acts. And you see Paul, and it's always Paul and, Paul and, Paul and, always taking people with him, always going to new cities, always planting new churches, always making more disciples. And I believe that's what we're called to do. And so we think about somewhere like Worthington, and you know, even today, after this service is over, our Worthington launch team will meet in conference room B uh, across the lobby. You can go there, meet Dan, Courtney, Jason, Leah, our team that is going down there. But let me tell you what's not good enough. Some of you are going to get mad at me, and that's okay. But I'm going to tell you what's not good enough. It's not good enough to say, yeah, Worthington, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see you on the 10th. That's when we launch, right? We'll start our first service down there. That's not good enough. We're not launching church services. If we wanted to launch church services all over the city and just have church service, that'd be, man, that's way easier. We could do that but we're not launching church services. We're planting a congregation of multiplying disciples in the community of Worthington. So we need you not to show up on the 10th, right? And just kind of be there and we need you to show up now, to walk across, across the lobby now and say, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I give? How can I be part of the vision? How can we begin to pray together for people that I know who live there, for family members that I know who are there? Because we're not just starting church services. We want to wake up to the mission of God. And it is our thrill and our joy as a church to send for as long as God gives us the opportunity. We want to be wide awake to the mission. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is that we wake up to the mission. By then, he says, our um, by listening up. So verse three, remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So wake up and then listen up. The one consistent thing that Jesus says to all of these churches, all seven of these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear, let her hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches, to the individuals who are in the churches. You know, what's interesting is John writes the Revelation, also his gospel. And in his gospel, one of the things that he says about Jesus, right, is he quotes Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. So if Jesus is the shepherd, we're the sheep. We've talked about this before. Sheep, 
Very low IQ animals, not real, real smart. They have one keen sense. They hear very, very well. They're very good hearers. And right after Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, what does he say? And my sheep, John 10, know my voice, right? My sheep know my voice. And that's a specific reference to their culture. Shepherds got flocks at night. Um, A few shepherds maybe would get together and they would night, quote unquote, their flocks together. Now, the reason they did this is because one shepherd can't encircle a whole perimeter of a large flock, right? So if you've got a few shepherds who put their flocks together, you got one here, one here, one here, one here, right? They can form a perimeter, fight off any predators, wolves, or whatever. Now, the problem with that is that in the morning, all the sheep are mixed up, right? So what they would do, because sheep have one keen sense, is one shepherd gets over here, one shepherd gets over here, one, and they all had distinct calls. And they would all start calling, and the sheep who came to you, your sheep knew your call, your voice. As a matter of fact, in their culture, um, if there was ever a dispute, like, oh, I think I own that sheep. Well, I think I own that. One would get on one side, one would get on the other side. They would both start calling whichever way that particular lamb went. That was proof of ownership. Hearing the voice was proof of ownership. And I think sometimes for us, we find ourselves caught between two calls, right? We find ourselves in a minute, um, man, Caleb uh, mentioned this morning. We find ourselves in moments of great, Difficulty. Um, I think about our church just this week. We had two folks, um, or at least two that I know about, maybe more, I don't know, but two folks this week who lost parents. It's a very difficult, painful moment and transition to walk through. And in the difficult moments, in the tough moments, in the moments where we think, man, things aren't going to work out the way that I want them to work out, we find ourselves caught, I think, sometimes between these two calls, between God's voice on the one side that says, listen, come to me, hear from me. It's this invitation, be with me because this is where you're gonna find joy. And on the other side, there's another voice. Maybe it's the voice of addiction, right? And that's everything from chemical addiction to shopping or whatever, right? You've got one voice, God saying, be with me. I will show you joy in the midst of this. And you've got this other voice over on the other side, the voice of addiction that says, yeah, but I'll make you feel better. And all of a sudden here we are, we're caught between two calls. Which voice will you listen to? So many times caught between God's voice and the voice of anger. We're caught between God's voice and the voice of passivity. He who has ears, let him hear. One of our worship leaders um, today, last year was cast in the film, A Man Called Otto, the Tom Hanks movie, if you, if you saw that film. And you know, she had a little bit of a, of a background role in the film and they filmed uh, the movie actually up in north, uh, north central Ohio, up near just outside of Cleveland. And so it was cold. And so her uh, scene was at a train station. So while she wasn't in the scene, she and some of her other castmates, they went and got in one of the train cars, right? The man in a caboose or whatever, just to kind of stay warm. And they're sitting there watching, filming, everything is smooth. And all of a sudden they hear a voice behind them. And they turn around and it's Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson. And they just come into the train car and they sit down. And for no reason than just to chat, 
they sit and talk with these few uh, background actors for 15 or 20 minutes in between, in between the scenes, which is pretty cool, right? And I was thinking about that this week and I thought, that would be awesome. But as great as Tom Hanks is, the creator God of the universe every day wants to climb up into the train car of our, he wants to climb up in the caboose of our lives with all the mess, with all the difficulty and with all, and he wants to sit down and just chat. He's given you everything you need. He's given you a Bible. You've got his word. You know what he wants to say to you. And you can say back to him whatever you want about what it is that he's saying to you. The, the thought that the invitation, the magnanimity, it's not just what God says. It's not just, well, I try and read the Bible. I can't. It's the who is <laughs> climbing up into your life. Jesus says, he who has an ear. If you've got an ear towards that, a good idea good idea is to hear what the Spirit says in the church. So wake up to the mission, listen up to God's voice. And then the last thing uh, is dress up. Uh, look at verses uh, four in the first half of verse five. It says this, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Now, this is a little bit of that revelation language. You're like walking in white garment. What, what, is, what does this mean? And I'll, I'll, as for my best interpretation, here's what I think it means. I think it's a reference to a wedding. I think it's, this is a reference to covenant language, walking in white robes and white garments, right? When we think about that. And so the idea here is that um, walking in white means God has made a covenant with us. And when we think covenant, um, and they thought covenant, it was different, right? We think covenant, we think contract. You do your part, I do my, that, that's what we think. In their world, covenant happened in the midst of sacrifice, and it was commitment. Sometimes um, covenants were punishable by death in, in their world. Think about the uh, covenant God made with Noah. We'll talk a little bit about that next week or the covenant that God made um, with Abraham. Remember God came to Abraham, you remember that? God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna make, Genesis chapter 12, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. That's very important because what God does not say, he doesn't say, hey, Abraham, we're gonna make a covenant. And why didn't God say it that way? Because God knows if he makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham's going to break his, I mean, he's going to break his end of the covenant just like that, right? I mean, just as fast as Abraham says it, it's not going to be very long before Abraham breaks it. No, God doesn't say that. He says, Abraham, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with you. In other words, Abraham, I'm the God who's faithful. I'm the God who keeps his promises. I'm the God who does everything that I say that I'm gonna do. So here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna make a covenant and because I'm faithful, I'm gonna keep my end of the covenant. And because you're not, I'm gonna keep your end of the covenant. And so God sends his one and only son, Jesus, to earth 
to die on a Roman cross, crucified for your sins and my sins, miraculously resurrected on the third day to give us the future tense hope that we have out in the future that that gives us the sense that everything I can trust God today because I know what's coming down the road. That I believe what Revelation is going to teach us is that what we call the end, right? The end of life, we're all worried about it. The end of the world, maybe that's coming. That the end, Revelation, because the end's just the beginning. Like you're just getting started at the end. And what makes that difference is a covenant keeping God. Because you won't keep up your end of the deal I won't keep up my end of the deal. We're all fractured. We're all broken. So he says, here's what's going to happen. There are some of you right now who are walking through very difficult things and you're listening to my voice. And in the midst of listening to my voice, he who has an ear, what you're doing is you are alive and you are awake to the mission. You're living in authenticity. You're living in humility. You're not faking it. You're not an imposter. You're willing to let other people in and see the realities of both the difficulty and the hope that you can have, and you're somehow miraculously expressing joy in the middle of incredible persecution. There are a few of you in Sardis. And I'll just say there are a few of you in LifePoint who are walking worthy, white robes, white garments. It's like a wedding. I mentioned to you last week that we had just come out of uh, wedding weekend at our house, our oldest had just gotten married. And in the process of planning uh, the wedding, um, my daughter um, said to me, and you know, some things are in weddings today. If you go to weddings, some things are conventional, some things unconventional. So not everybody does all the same things like, they, like I used to think about a wedding. And so my, my daughter said to me, she said, uh, Dad, um, do you want to do the father-daughter dance? You know, that's one thing that you typically do at a wedding. Do you want do you want to do the father daughter dance? And if my answer to her had been oh yeah, I forgot about that dance. Yeah, I mean I guess so. Like it's my job. Everybody does the dance, you know, it's my it's the thing, it's part of the thing that is the father of the bride, you know. I'm supposed to kind of like my duty, right? That I'm supposed to that I'm supposed to do that I'm supposed to keep like <clears throat> Wrong answer, right? No, she said, hey, do you want to do, do this father-daughter? As a matter of fact, I'll show you just a quick snap that somebody, um, that somebody took of us when we were doing the father-daughter dance, right? And I, I said to her, she said, do you want to do, do the dance? I said, absolutely, I want to do the dance. I paid a lot of money to do this dance. <laughs> it's a very expensive dance we're about to do. It's not a have to, it's a get to. The one and only creator covenant keeping God of the universe sent his one and only son to be crucified, sacrificed, to die a terrible death on a cross. That's not a have to, he didn't have to, but he wanted to. So how do you and I respond to that? Well, I got to get up and read my Bible. That's what the Christians are supposed to do. Not a have to. 
And listen, I understand we're broken, frail humanity, expressing that in all the way. You and I should leap out of bed in the morning and run as fast as we can to the voice of the one who gave his life for us. You're like, man, is it that big a deal? Yeah. I don't have to celebrate. I want to celebrate. And when I don't want to celebrate, my prayer is that God, I want to want to celebrate. Why? Look at the end of verse five. Here's what he says. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The best that John has got in this vision of heaven, the best way to communicate that to me is that when you come to God, right? And when you come to God, authenticity and humility, you come to God surrendering, submitting your life to him. You step into eternal relationship with him. Good news, life point. He writes your name in his book. Not in pencil. Can't erase it. Write your name in ink. And I will never. You are eternally secure. So whatever it is that you and I are going through today is founded in our security someday. He's the one who saved you. You can't unsave you, right? He's the one who died for you. He's the one who did the work. And when you're in, he says, I will know wise. I will never blot them out of my book. So what? So wake up. Wake up to the mission. Because what you've been awoken to is what the world needs. Wake up. Live a multiplying life. Not a life where it's just about us and we're just getting us together and you're getting together with your buddies and your friends all the time because they think the same things you do. They believe the same things you do. They vote the same way you do. No, 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 that's not the point. Wake up. How do I wake up? You wake up because you listen up. Because the first voice that you pay attention to every day is the voice of your father that's climbed up in the caboose of your life with all the mess and says, I am here. And you listen up because as you're walking, you're dressed up. You're dressed for something greater, for eternity, a joyful eternity that's out in front of you that you and I reach up and we grab it and we bring that reality into every single day. It's so practical for our everyday lives. Let's pray together. God, will you help us? You're the greatest thing, the most unbelievable, (laughs) imaginable gospel good news. And you didn't have to, but the God that you wanted to. God, I pray that we will be a people, that we will be, um, that we will be life groups, that we will be a church that are filled with people who wake up, listen up, and dress up. That we are ready to meet you. In your name we pray. Amen.